Nearly three years have passed since the public voted to leave the European Union. Brexit. Brexit. And get Brexit, Brexit over the line. Get Brexit done. Part of the word leave, don't you understand? So today I have written to Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, to request a short extension of Article 50 up to the 30th of June to give MPs the time to make a final choice. Brexit. It has been the defining event of European politics since the British people voted to leave the European Union in June 2016. The deal has been negotiated among the British public and politicians for three years, but they have been unable to agree on exactly how they want to carry it through. The original plan was for the UK to leave on March 29, 2019. It did not. Instead, it received first a short extension to April 12, and then a longer one to the end of June. On April 8, I and senior editor Josh Doyle sat down with Leave voter Andy Edge to discuss what went into his decision to vote Leave and his opinions about the rather chaotic process to carry through that decision. You are listening to the fourth episode of the Novatia podcast. I'm your host and editor-in-chief, Joel Petersen Ulle. So, Andy, can you account for your whereabouts on June 23rd, 2016? Um, okay, so June 23rd, 2016, I was living in Daejeon, working as an English teacher, um, glued to my monitor screen, watching what was going on with this referendum. All right. And what happened? How did you feel about it? Um, so, in the run-up, I was feeling very negative. I think at, at one point, just after the polls closed some of the sort of leading lights on the Leave side pretty much conceded the referendum and said, like, no, we think we've come close, but we've lost. Um, then the first results started coming in, and it was the big cities in the northeast, I think maybe Sunderland and Newcastle, and they had swung much further towards Leave than predicted, and suddenly all of the polling and all of the expectations sort of went out the window, and all of the commentary was then, wow, if these cities have swung, maybe we've completely misjudged the entire mood in the country. I think it was, it was in that sense, it was very comparable to the US election, where once the results start coming in, you realize that the polling is just sort of way out of touch with what yeah, the people are feeling. Wasn't what people where are you from in the UK? Um, I'm from a small town called Chester. It's sort of northwest, sort of 30 minutes away from Liverpool and Manchester. Um, so Chester itself was pretty much 50-50, I think. Um, the actual sort of voting region that I live in is more rural. It's like a sort of agricultural area. We all voted to leave. And so did you. And so did I, yes. And so what kind of led to this decision that you that made you vote for Brexit? Um, there were a lot of things. I think sort of the biggest thing playing on my mind is that there was no kind of status quo option. Um, so you would have preferred the status quo? I would have tolerated the status quo. And what would the status quo look like? What's this? Um, so so what, what I mean by that is right now the European Union has a lot of problems, but it has a lot of good things about it. Okay. But the European Union is not a static project. That's very dynamic. That's constantly pushing towards further integration, further right. powers going towards Brussels. Okay. So... 
I think had there been an option to keep things exactly the same sort of in, in perpetuity, mm-hmm. I would probably have gone for that one. So basically like a snapshot yes. solution where you just like freeze your relationship with the EU as it was? Yes. All right. It's, it's not ideal, but I think I would probably have been risk averse enough that I would have accepted that. Mm-hmm. But given the choice was between leaving and sort of allowing the project to continue getting sucked further and further into it, I think that was the point where I decided it's better to leave now than to keep going further in and be forced to leave at a later date. So what was this, like specifically, what were you kind of concerned about with uh, like Britain's relationship to the EU? Um, so I, I think one of the fundamental issues is I believe politics is better done at the level of the nation state. Um, so the EU is a it's a construct of 28 different nations all trying to work together. They have very different sort of economies, very different histories. Um, you have everything from the sort of Western European traditional liberal democracies to former Soviet states in the east of, of Europe. It's a real patchwork. It is. And every policy decision that's made at EU level has to sort of take into account the needs of all of those mm-hmm. without actually meeting the needs of any of them. Right. So England wanted to be selfish, in other words? Um, to an extent. Mm, although, no, that's, I mean, that's yeah. fair. I mean, I don't, I don't know if selfish is the right word. I would go more with optimized or efficient. It's sort of, I, I think Britain can make better policies for itself. France can make better policies for France. Poland can make better policies for Poland right. than a group of bureaucrats sat in Brussels can for all 28 at once. So yeah. if, if I would just uh, offer my, like, I should also openly declare my bias. I'm Swedish. I am, like you, still re- recording this on April 10th, which is two days before you're supposed to leave, or maybe not. We're not sure. Uh, but as a citizen of Sweden, which is a relatively small country in in the world uh, and in the EU with a population of only about 10 million people, uh, for us, I think EU has been very beneficial. Uh, and so you wouldn't say that you saw some kind of benefit of some like overarching, like, you know, the the union part of the of the European Union. You didn't see some kind of uh, that that would be some kind of goal in itself. Um, I mean, it goes back to what I said before. The way things are right now, I can see a lot of benefits. I think as we get more integrated, as we move more sort of economic policies, particularly monetary policies like the euro, right. I think sooner or later Britain would have been forced into the euro. That may have been a red line for us. Sure. At that point, we may have left, but it would be a much more painful Brexit. Um, but yeah, so... I think as Europe becomes more integrated, those benefits are going to get fewer and fewer. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, as I as I said, if we could have kept things frozen as they are right now, I think I could probably have been persuaded to vote Remain, mm-hmm. but that was never on the ballot. All right. So you you, you said red lines. There, there's been like a lot of red lines and pe- things that people absolutely don't want with this uh, Brexit deal, uh, and there are more than I can recall at the moment. But uh, how would you say that your decision for voting for Brexit is kind of, would you say that it represents the average of what most Brexit voters feel? Uh, because like from my point of view, who's somebody who's rather critical of, of Brexit, I've kind of, the kind of the view that you will often see in media is uh, that the typical Brexit voter is very, is kind of very heavily leaning into this kind of anti-immigrant side. The, the They really want to restrict the free movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, that your reasons for voting 
uh, leave seem to be more uh, like institutional and uh, maybe geopolitical rather than uh, concerned with those kind of issues. So how, how would you say that the average Brexit voter thought? Um, I mean, I, I think it's very difficult to define who the average Brexit voter is. It it really spans British yeah. society. Different groups within Britain have their own reasons. Um, there was definitely a big part of the sort of referendum was focused on immigration. I would kind of push back and say I don't think it was anti-immigrant sentiment. It was anti-immigration sentiment. What's the difference? Yeah, what do you mean? Anti-immigrant is disliking the people. Right, mm. right. Anti-immigration is disliking the concept of hundreds of thousands of people okay. a year moving in and sort of what that does. Like, um, I mean, if I was going to give you an example, I'm yet to meet a Brexiteer who dislikes your average Frenchman, your dif- your average German, your average. But Pole. let's be honest, though. Like the the issue wasn't with Frenchmen and Germans moving into to Brexit. For like the the, the but even Polish, Romanians, they don't dislike individual people. What they object to is suddenly within their community, there's a hundred thousand new people who may or may not speak English. Yeah particularly for the British working class, those new arrivals are now competing for the entry-level jobs. Right. Um, there was a study from the Bank of England that suggested mass immigration into Britain has actually pushed down wages. And I think that I think it's a very important distinction to make is the people who supported Brexit, they're not anti-foreigner in any kind of way. They're just anti-hundreds of thousands of people coming each year and competing for those jobs. But don't you think that it might have, in some ways, increased anti-foreigner sentiments for people who were already predisposed to those kind of opinions? Um, Because there has been a lot of, of people who have uh, said that they, they feel like they are they feel less welcome in in Britain after the vote. They yes, I've <clears throat> I've seen a lot of people saying that I don't know how much of that is genuine how much of that is based on interactions they've had with british people and how much is what they've read in the media the british media have really whipped this up like particularly if you look at um the left of british media so the guardian in particular yeah um and sort of the the real remain supporting media outlets right a lot of those have tried to whip it up that this is some sort of racist backlash and britain now hates foreigners in reality, I don't think that's the case, and I've not seen any evidence of it. So when I hear those claims, I'm, I agree, I'm very sympathetic to them. But I don't necessarily think that's come from the British people. I think that's it's a sentiment that's been created by a section of the British media. So do you think that there's been an undue focus on the immigration issue in the Brexit debate in general? Um, I think during the debate, the Leave side were definitely focused on immigration, but that's because immigration's been a huge issue in our politics for a long time. Mm. And again, it's immigration, not immigrants. But there were a lot of like slogans during the, the campaign. Like you would see uh, these uh, posters of like huge hordes of people. And there, there was a kind of there was a kind of a narrative that you have just you know, the kind of this face of mass. The, the way you say it is like immigration versus immigrants, but like it's kind of becomes an issue where you where you look at immigration as kind of more as a, some sort of natural phenomena rather than like a human phenomena. Yes, yeah. I mean I can, but equally I think it's it's difficult to talk about it whilst retaining that distinction and also including the human side of it. All right. 
So like then because this has been a prominent issue and it is a kind of contentious topic, but how do you feel like you're perceived by by others? when you uh, when you say that you're a leave supporter i mean i know you i know you're not very shy of of admitting this fact but yes. like how do you how do you feel like that leave supporters in general are perceived by people who uh, are other remainers or um that's a good question i think a lot of that goes back to this sort of media perception um so a lot of people when they find out i'm a leave supporter they immediately have a negative reaction negative perception if they're willing to actually talk to me and ask me like you guys are why did I vote leave right. once I've sort of explained my reasons and concerns they're generally much more sympathetic yeah. um, my experience of talking to Europeans is initially particularly the younger ones they're horrified that I would vote to leave yeah and they why, can't imagine why do I hate them <laughs> why do I want to leave their continent once I actually explain sort of what Brexit means to me and my reasons for voting leave a lot of them actually agree with some of the issues I identify with with the EU. Um, obviously, generally, their answer or their solution wouldn't be to leave the European Union. Sure. They would prefer to sort of reform it from within. But there is a lot more sympathy once I actually explain my views and my reasons. Mm. I think it is just this knee-jerk reaction to sort of, whoa, he voted leave. We all know what that means. And I think a lot of that comes back back to this sort of media perception that's been created and can so you, you know, right now you're a student of international relations yep. you're getting a master's degree here it's a very you know globalized topic how do you i mean do you ever feel the need to justify that or i mean to yourself how does that how does that balance out you're a you know student of international relations but you're voting to leave a, a big international institution oh it balances out very easily yeah. Um, so we're we're part of a sort of union with 27 countries in the world, but we manage to cooperate, trade, work together with all of the others. Our biggest ally is arguably the United States, but we're not in a political or economic union with the United States. Yeah. So I don't think a construct like the European Union is necessary for cooperation. So that really doesn't come into it. Like being a student of international studies... I'm still very much international focused, right. very interested in international cooperation, but not international union. So if we look a bit more specifically at Britain here, something that I think maybe you've seen across European politics in general is, uh, I guess, world politics, but this polarization that people talk about. And uh, how do you how do you think about the way that the Brexit issue has polarized British society? You talked about like in in your opinion the the left media kind of uh, swaying people's opinion one way. Uh, you could say that you have the the right wing media in in Britain as well swaying people the other way. But there is definitely a very it's, it's a contentious issue and it's really created a large split in British society. I and mean, how do you think about that? Oh, massively. I. I think British society right now is probably more divided than I can ever remember it being, um, which is a huge problem. Um, I don't know. It might, it might be overly simplistic, but my kind of gut feeling is a lot of that division is to do with the Remain side. Obviously, three years ago, we had the election. It it has actually been pretty much three years since we had that vote. There is a large section of the Remain side still won't accept it, still won't... They won't contribute their voices to the kind of Brexit they want because the kind of Brexit they want is no Brexit. Well, w didn't you have a petition which had six million people signing it? Yes. 
Yeah. And that that's a part of the problem for what? Uh, a, a petition to cancel the leaving process and stay in the EU. Essentially to have another referendum? Yes. Oh, not, not another referendum. This was just overturn democracy and cancel leaving. But is it of overturning democracy then? Because this is something that I've seen how people argue. There's one, the, there's one side that argues that we should respect democracy because uh, so and so many people voted for leave back in 2016. And then you have people who say we should respect democracy because in the last three years, the situation has changed so much that more people uh, are supporting uh, uh, remaining than leaving, so we should respect the opinions of those people. So you have basically one po one point of view which says we should respect the democracy that was then, and some people who say we should respect the democracy that mm. is now. If you if you see what I'm getting at, yeah, yeah, that yeah. that makes sense. Um, there's a couple of things on that then. So we technically we have had two votes on it. We had the initial referendum. It was 52% leave, 48% remain. <laughs> we then had a general election a few months after that, and it was about 85% of British people voted for a party that had leaving the European Union in their manifesto. But on the other hand, doesn't every party have their leavers and their remainers? Yes, I but, mean, you but, could, the, but yeah. the parties went into the general election with their official policy on Brexit being to leave, mm -hmm. 85% of the population were willing to vote for it back then. Um, the other thing I would say is, yes, we, we had the big protest a couple of weeks ago. We had that petition that got to 6 million. Mm -hmm. When you look at polls of the whole country, um, they're actually showing very similar results to what they did back in June 2016, which is a narrow, it's a narrow lead for Remain. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what it was right up to referendum day, kind of what we started mm -hmm. with today. It looked as though Remain was going to win, and then suddenly when it came down to the voting, Leave won. And that's broadly what the polls are showing. They've maybe shifted a percentage or two since then. But this this sort of notion that the British people have changed their mind and there's a huge swing away from it, the swing isn't much different to what it looked like right before we initially voted back in June 2016. All right. But so you're saying that... Um there is like a broad like cross-party support for for this like you said 85 percent of the voters so who were the 15 percent like which parties were that um 15 percent would yeah. be liberal democrats mm -hmm. uh snp scottish, scottish national, national party, party. Right. uh green party i think played cymru like mm -hmm. the welsh nationalist party okay and a few other northern irish parties opposed it um Obviously, Labour and the Conservatives disagreed mm. on how they would implement Brexit, mm. but both of them contested that election on a platform of delivering Brexit. Do you think that some people are more comfortable with saying that, or maybe they feel like they want to say they remain, but like in the end, deep down, they actually do want to leave the EU? Because you said that, you know, it sounds like there's this sentiment that people have changed their minds and people say one thing, but then when the voting comes, they actually voted more, obviously, to to leave the EU for Brexit. Do you think that there's some kind of like a, an imbalance between what people say they want and then when it really comes down to it, what they actually want? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think I think there's a lot of parallels you can draw between Brexit and between the Trump election in the US, where again, going into that, I think the polls had something like 95% Hillary win. Once the results started coming in, it became clear that polling didn't actually match what people were voting for. 
but then the vote itself like would you say that uh or this may be a too much of a leading question but like it, to me it seems that the brexit vote has had a decidedly negative impact on british uh, society in in very many ways up until this point yes right so uh, and likewise you could argue for for the the trump administration uh, on for for the us although i don't want to get in too much into uh, us politics here because that's another different quagmire podcast. that would yeah that's a different podcast <laughs> for a different age so i want to look at this <clears throat> this split and because and this cross party support thing that we have would you say that left and right is becoming a less important kind of way of viewing polarization uh, because uh, Josh was kind of uh, alluding to this when he he asked you as uh, somebody who voted in a uh, I dare say nationalist fashion for as a student of international studies there might be some kind of uh, contradiction there uh, is what I kind of gathered what he yeah. that he was suggesting. So the question I'm kind of asking is would it do you think that it is a more uh, it's a more informative to view polarization as an issue between like uh, internationalists and nationalists rather than left and right? Um, for the first part, I would agree that I don't think left and right is very useful anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, just, just take a look at, at a lot of parties these days. You have parties that are economically very conservative and yet socially are very liberal. Okay. Would you, um, could you give an example? In so our, our conservative part, it was our conservative party that legalized gay marriage, for example. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Our, our sort of left wing labor party never i guess they never felt strong enough in government to actually do it right. didn't want to put it to the people so our conservative party actually went ahead and legalized that mm -hmm. which i think was very brave of them to do that sure, because yeah. that's a very liberal move mm -hmm. but obviously economically they're still very much a right-wing sort of economically conservative party okay. but becoming socially more and more liberal like on on a lot of social issues, there's not much difference between our left-wing party and right-wing party these days. But can you sympathize with like the, the views of Remainers and like the, the ones who, who really feel that this was not a good, yeah, uh, good oh, decision? I mean, like I, said, like I said sort of during the introduction, the EU is far from perfect, but in its current form, I could probably have been convinced to remain within it. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't like where I think it's going to end up, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons I voted for it. So, yeah, somebody, somebody who's more passionate about the EU than I am, who's now being told, yes, we're leaving, like, yeah, I, I totally see where they're coming from. I don't think it warrants some of the sort of hysteria that we've seen. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it warrants some of the attacks on Leave voters as a whole, mm -hmm. trying to brand us as racist, xenophobic, small-minded, bigoted like wanting the British Empire back. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think it really justifies those. Mm. But yeah, I, I can understand why there would be a lot of concern on their side. What what I would sort of say to that, though, is we obviously had this vote three years ago. The people who are still campaigning to overturn it, I think they're really contributing like to this polarization because instead of putting their voices in and saying, okay, we voted to leave... Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about remaining part of this group or let's try and keep this sort of benefit. Instead of adding their voices to the conversation, they're just screaming, Still we must it. not leave. What that's kind of meaning is those voices are actually being lost from the conversation. Mm -hmm. When we're discussing deals, sort of how we're going to Brexit, that 
that sort of input is generally missing from the debate. Mm-hmm. Right, but so, yeah, for, for this how uh, question, how to leave Brexit, uh, and discussing about well, like which kind of deals and what kind of benefits you can keep. I want to kind of get into this post hoc rationalization yeah. part of Brexit because, uh, you know, there are many different deals and that have been discussed and for different reasons, uh, the government of Theresa May has rejected uh, all of them. Uh, you, you could do like a Norway deal or a Switzerland deal or a Canada deal or, uh, I mean, I've heard Ukraine deal and Turkey deals, like all this kind of yeah, different yeah, yeah. relationships that other countries have, uh, even South Korea deal. I think I heard that one. Um, but at at the end of the day, like at this point, a lot of uh, uh, Brexiteers, including uh, yourself, are saying that like the one option is hard Brexit. But in the lead up to the referendum, you had people saying leaving is going to be very easy. It's going to be very easy to make a deal. How many people do you think were actually in it for hard Brexit from the get-go? Um, I think the, the kind of hard Brexit that we're staring at now, I don't think many people would have been in that from the get-go. Um, sort of the problem from where I'm sitting is I feel our negotiating strategy was wrong from the first moment. Um, we... So when we first started negotiations, we sort of um, we started out by agreeing the divorce bill, mm-hmm. um, which is the amount we would pay to the European Union kind of as we left, which is thirty nine billion, I believe. Mm-hmm. I believe that's the latest figure. Pounds. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we. <laughs> yeah. And that we, was just a crazy amount of money. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, the problem was we let them set the agenda. There was uh, there was a very interesting interview I watched last week with the former Greek finance minister, which uh, Yanis Varoufakis, I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, and he basically described the sort of the, ne- the negotiation process and the deal as a surrender document. He said, this, this is what you sign when you lose a war. Yeah. Um, and he really criticized it because he said, we started out by agreeing to everything that the EU wanted, mm. which was we agreed, we'll negotiate on their timeline, we'll give them all of the money they want, we'll give them this, we'll give them that. Once we'd agreed to give them everything, we'd given away all of our leverage. We then said, hey, EU, can we have some things now? Mm-hmm. And they said, no. And right. at that point, they were we, used to get in their way. We, yeah, we we had no leverage. Had we pushed for a tied negotiation, where the amount of money we give relates to what they'll also give to us, we could have said, okay, we'll start at this figure. We would like access to this EU institution. Mm-hmm. EU says, okay, how about an extra four billion onto the settlement? We say, uh, deal, and we can add it like that. Now that we've got this figure agreed of thirty nine billion. The EU is unwilling to revisit that. They've just said, nope, you've agreed to that. That's what you're paying. So our leverage is now we pay the 39 billion and we have no leverage or we pay nothing of the 39 billion and we hard Brexit. There's no room for negotiation Mm. because that figure is fixed. And that was our main sort of leverage. That was the thing that we had that they wanted. What does the 39 billion get you? Good question. <laughs> um, is so, it just a, is that just a penalty for leaving? Um, that- so it a lot of, a lot of it is to cover um, like Britain's obligations towards the EU budget. So the EU runs a sort of forward budget. It has forward planning for several years right. because we committed to that budget whilst we were a member. Um, it covers things like obligations to that. Sure. 
um, various sort of investment obligations that we've made, uh, that you can make a very good case for us paying it. Mm. Um, although there was a ruling, like a legal ruling, that we weren't actually legally required to pay it. It's more of a goodwill thing, sort of, we want to leave the European Union, but we do want to remain on where, where good was terms that ru- with them. Where was that ruling made? Um, I can't remember if it was the British courts or the ECJ. Okay, but it, it was one European of, Court one of, of Justice. The, yeah, mm-hmm. it was one of the one of the top courts mm-hmm. ruled that, and it wasn't a contentious ruling. It was a very sort of solid ruling um, that there may not be a legal obligation to pay that. Obviously, I I actually support us paying that because. We want to be good neighbours. We want to leave and continue having a good relationship. We have committed to to investing those funds within Europe, and I think we should do. Mm. But at the same time, I feel that sum should have been negotiated alongside the terms of our withdrawal, because if you negotiate one without the other, one side loses all of their negotiating power. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that that was the fundamental mistake that we made, yeah. because we've we now have very little negotiating power. It's proving incredibly difficult to get the European Union to sit down and actually discuss sensible withdrawal agreements. So you're saying that it's it's more a case of Britain just kind of uh, fubbing with the, just completely screwing up the negotiation process and not so much like the EU having done their part or they just had to sit there and kind of... Um, so I think I think right at the start the EU said we want to discuss the um, like the fee for withdrawing before we discuss anything else. That was their opening position to negotiations. Instead of Britain countering that with their own offer and saying no, like we think certain aspects should come together because maybe certain amounts that we pay could be linked to future access to Europe. Instead of counter offering, our government just said, "Yep, sure." Let's do, do you, it that way. Do you think they were just so eager to be like, okay, let's get out of here, that they just said, yeah, whatever you want, take it. We're I mean, no, no, com- complete opposite. So, so our Prime Minister, Theresa May, she campaigned for Remain, okay. and there is a lot of evidence she still supports remaining in the European Union. Mm-hmm. So the fun- I think one of the fundamental issues we've had is it's pretty much two Remain sides trying to negotiate leaving the European Union. The European Union don't want us to leave because they want to preserve the Union. Right. Theresa May and a lot of her cabinet don't want to leave because they supported Remain. Mm-hmm. And these two sides who both oppose Brexit somehow have to sit down and deliver Brexit. So you have like yeah, you have this kind of weird position where you have the conservative Remainer, Theresa May, leading the, the Brexit negotiations. And then in opposition to her, you have at least maybe it's not... I'm not sure if he was ever like an open lever, but at least very Eurosceptic, uh, the uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, he he used to be very open about wanting to leave. He, I think, probably ten or fifteen years ago, he was calling for a referendum, mm-hmm. which he now officially opposes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the quirks of British politics. Is um, we'll start with the Conservative Party. So they they are overwhelmingly a Leave party at this point in terms of their members and their voter base. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of MPs, like the representatives yeah. within the British Parliament, that's roughly split 50-50. About half of Conservative MPs want to leave, half re- want to remain. So how come you have that kind of skewed representation in that case, if, if the voter base is so overwhelmingly leave? Um, a lot of it's to do with tribal voting. Um, 
so we we don't have a proportional representation system. We have a first past the post system, right. which means it's very difficult for a party other than Labour or Conservative to win. Mm. In in most of the sort of regions of the UK, it's a binary choice between the two. If you're a lifelong Labour voter, you would almost certainly never vote Conservative, and vice versa. Right. So even if you disagree with their position on Brexit, there's every chance that at a general election you would still vote for your tribe mm-hmm. because you're more afraid of the other tribe. Gotcha. Um, I think that's that's what's created this situation is the sort of a lot of the conservative old guard are opposed to Brexit but keep being voted in by Brexit supporters because the Brexit supporters are terrified of Labour getting in. Can we ask one more why question? Why the UK? I mean, there's a whole lot. There's, what did you say, 27 countries in the EU? Yep. 27 <coughs> countries. Um, maybe some of them are happier there than others. Maybe some have, you know, complaints. But it was the UK that, that left. And the UK is certainly, correct me if I'm wrong, but the biggest country to propose to, to leave the, the EU. Yep. Why, why the UK? I mean, you, you said that there's this notion that maybe people are this throwback to the hegemony. They fear losing their that old, you know, English empire feeling as Brussels gains more power. I don't know if you think that has anything to do with it, but what's what's your take on this? Why did the UK of all countries decide uh, to leave? Good question. I don't I don't think the hegemony in empire really comes into it. Um that's not a sentiment I've picked up. That's if you hear about that, it generally it goes back to the sort of the left-wing media, the sort of the remain supporting media trying to create this image of Brexiteers as like, we have this nostalgia for the empire. Mm. If you actually talk to people who voted Brexit, I don't think many of them feel that way. So why why Britain then? Why not uh, Hungary, which is very EU sceptic? Why Britain? Um, so when, when you look at countries like Hungary and Poland, they receive a lot more from the EU than we do mm-hmm. in terms of direct financial contributions. Although, they, although Hungary and Poland have a lot of issues with the EU. If you do polling within those countries, generally they're in favour of remaining. There isn't a big... So were the the people who were polled in Britain, though? By a much bigger margin in in those countries. Mm. Um, Other countries in Western Europe have sort of big Eurosceptic movements. Like, there's an element within France. Mm. I think you could look at the Netherlands, potentially Denmark. Um... I think the reason Britain went first is we were the first country that was asked. I think you were asked ah by your politicians, by the, yeah, by by the referendum. Um, the I think some of that may be tied to this first past the post system. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is around 2013, 2014, UKIP, which is the United Kingdom Independence Party, they arrived as a sort of insurgent force, mm-hmm. and they started taking votes from the two big parties. They never actually got into Parliament. Um, Because of the the first-past-the-post system, they would have required a huge swing even to get one representative. But they were enough of a threat to the Conservative Party because it was these sort of leave-supporting Conservatives who were defecting. Mm. Although there was no danger of UKIP becoming a parliamentary force, there was a danger of Labour becoming a parliamentary force. And at that point, David Cameron, who was the Conservative Prime Minister back then, he agreed that he would give us a referendum if he won the next general election. 
so at the next general election there was a big swing back to the conservatives mm-hmm. he won that election and was then sort of bound to give us the referendum you said the first sorry you said the first to leave do you predict that there will be more to follow um i think a lot depends on how we how we leave and how successful we are so let's let's uh, just briefly touch on that uh, because we're running out of time but okay. so what is going to happen like again this is april 10 april yep. 12 is a few days away I, i'm not sure if you're getting another extension or what has been going on the last few days but we're in a bit of a state of flux as and andy shrugs <laughs> yeah um so it it pretty much changes by the hour so what I read before I came here may not be current anymore. All right. Um, so the current the current state of affairs is Theresa May has asked for a short extension mm-hmm. from the EU, mm-hmm. uh, which would go through to the end of May. Um, the EU looks set to reject that and to offer us <laughs> their their counter offer, which I I suspect we're going to end up accepting, okay. is they're calling it a flex extension, like a flexible extension. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very, very catchy. Yeah, this this is just a all the creative acronyms. Yeah, yeah. just a game yeah. of catchphrases. Yeah. <laughs> so we're we're gonna have a Brexit flex extension, um, which will flex pro- it, if you will. Oh, no. flex baby. Damn. Um, so we're probably gonna go. That's probably going to last for about a year. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, but the condition will be as wow. soon as the British Parliament passes a withdrawal agreement, we can then leave at that point. So we don't have to use the full year, right? But it exists for a year. It's a nice cushion. Yeah. Um, what that means, and I think this is going to backfire horribly on the European Union, is Britain's going to contest the European elections. So we have European elections coming up yeah. in. May, I think it is. Yeah, around yeah, there. Yeah, end of end of May. Um, what that means is there's going to be a huge backlash. We're probably going to send a large number of UKIP representatives to the European Parliament. Their mandate will be because that's not a first past the post system. Uh, no, that's proportional representation. Mm-hmm. Proportional representation, and historically in the UK, European Parliament has been when you cast your protest vote. Mm. If you're a conservative and you don't vote conservative, it doesn't mean you get a Labour government. You're, like, for the last couple of elections, UKIP have won those because people feel a lot freer to vote for them. So what's this EU vote? What's what's that all about? You're going to go vote for what? Um, so it's for Britain's representatives within the, the, the EU parliament. parliament. Uh-huh. Um, I think we're going to send a large number of UKIP representatives their mandate will be to disrupt the European Parliament. They've shown before they're very effective at that. This time they would probably be going over in bigger numbers than they've ever gone over before. So I could see that backfiring on the European Union. So so would they stay there even after Britain leaves? No. No, they wouldn't. Yes. But do you really think that, you know, it, uh, it takes a certain amount of pettiness to uh, to enter like this kind of institution and just to basically fuck it up. I'm gonna have to mark this as explicit, but like, it's. Do you do you think that that isn't that would also backfire on the on Britain in that case because like it it sure isn't gonna make curry any favors with the with the EU. Um, I'm not sure because I don't think UKIP will be alone. Um, as we touched on earlier, there are Eurosceptic movements in a lot of other European countries. 
I've I've seen figures floating around that it could be as high as 20, 25, 30% anti-European representatives go in at the next election. Um, because obviously it's the same for all countries. Whoever you vote for in this European parliamentary election, there's no risk of other parties becoming your country's government. You do have a lot more freedom to kind of protest vote. So there are suggestions that France, Netherlands... You have the obviously the AFD in Germany, mm-hmm. um, various Eurosceptic movements from across Europe could actually do very well. So we could end up with a very large Eurosceptic bloc, mm-hmm. literally elected on a mandate of going to the EU and raising hell. Mm-hmm. But still, with the thirty percent representation, they they still would not be the majority. No, they they wouldn't be the majority, but that would be enough to potentially paralyze the European Union. Um, so if if you look at the Parliament, if you need a majority within the European Parliament, um, UKIP's policy has always been they will not vote for a single European Union legislation piece that comes through the Parliament. Uh, the logic for that is they don't believe the EU should have the authority to do that. Mm-hmm. If 30% of parliamentarians refuse to vote for any EU legislation, you would then need very broad cross-party support from the remaining 70% of parliamentarians just to get any kind of legislation passed. All right. Out of out of that 70% that remains, you would need 50% to agree on any particular bill that comes through. Otherwise, the European Parliament's just paralyzed. Okay, so uh, just to kind of wrap it up then, uh, do you think that in the end Britain will come out a better country from this entire mess that they're in right now? Um, it depends on the time frame you're talking. Okay, so let's uh, let's go with uh, your five year and your ten year and your I don't know your lifetime expectation. Five year, ten year, lifetime. I think lifetime, yes. Um, simply because. I feel I feel the UK would have been forced into Brexit at some point, mm-hmm. even if we remain now. As the European Union becomes more integrated, they take more control of judicial powers, economic powers. Sooner or later, they would push all of their members towards the euro. There's going to come a point where Britain would leave. I feel leaving sooner rather than later is a better thing. Okay. And 10 years? Um, 10 years, I would... As long as Brexit happens within the next year or two, mm. and that is something of an if right now, okay, um, I feel ten years, ten years is enough to sort of reestablish ourselves, find new trading relationships, and sort of heal a lot of these divisions within society. And five years. Five years depends on when we Brexit. Okay. If we if we Brexit sometime this year, and the the Remain side can sort of finally accept that it's happened. Let's move forwards. Let's build a sort of brighter, outward-looking Britain. Mm. Then, yes, maybe within five years we could heal those divisions. If we take the full year extension, and this time next year we've not got an agreement, so we take another year, and it drags on. I think this polarization and split that we talked about is only going to get bigger. Obviously, the bigger that gets, the longer it's going to take to heal within Britain. So, I feel the longer the Brexit process takes the longer that's going to take to actually sort of resolve itself once we leave. I mean, 
exploding. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I if I can turn questioner for a moment, yeah. uh-huh. would the euro be a red line for you? For me, if so, if Between if the me. European Union passes a law says mm-hmm. all EU members must adopt the euro starting two years from now, mm-hmm. would that make you a swagzitter? A swexiteer, <laughs> a swashbuckling swexiteer. Should, should I answer this in uh, in the Swedish accent as well? Maybe? Yes, yes, please. Uh, yes, if uh, <laughs> if Sweden uh, was forced by the EU, which I don't think it will be, uh, so I cannot do this. Is that, is that like is that effort for you to do that? It's yes, like, it, it takes some amount of effort. Right. Uh, but yeah, if if Sweden was forced into the euro by the EU, which I don't think the EU has hypothetically, has to do, but hypothetically. Uh, I would be much more convinced to uh, to see Sweden uh, exiting the EU. But that but what about what about your kids? Right My kids. I mean, not that you don't have any yet, but what about that generation? For, for like the future, mm-hmm. I think at the point where they would try to push the euro, I think the euro has really it's really not a very attractive option to anybody right now uh, in the wake of the euro crisis. And mm. so, again, it is a hypothetical, but like the hypothetical implies that you would have all these other things happening. Uh, so maybe you would see just a, a need for EU to be much more united. In that case, yeah, I could see Sweden use the euro. So like if we need to maybe stand up to China, which is something that yeah. I think that I think uh, the EU needs to do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which currently, uh, just <laughs> not to like get onto my like favorite subject too much, but like do it. The Chinese are destroying the EU. No, but they are they are in, to some extent ex- exploiting certain divisions and fault lines within the EU. Sure. Uh, read my article about it. No, mm. but um, but and that's the kind of the kind of thing that I want the EU to be um, more like collectively a, a union that they so they can stand up towards uh, protectionist US or a uh, assertive China or uh, a. God knows what they're doing in Russia. I, uh, again, I don't. I don't think there was going to be a com- conflict with Russia between the EU. But like we have the Ukraine, which ver- is very much tied into like EU and NATO overreach mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. that region. Right. Uh, and but I, I still th- I think that EU does need to stand united on these kind yeah. of external security issues. I yeah. think that if it would be required at some point in the future that we had like one currency in order to kind of solidify that union. And if, I, if somebody could make a good case for it, then I probably would not consider the euro red line. See, he's already, he's already swaying that way. No, I'm just saying I'm open to, uh, to a different interpretation. No, no, I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm, as a non-EU resident, as a Canadian, that's totally, Commonwealth Yeah, well, yep. Commonwealth fair enough. So maybe I'm more on your side. But I, I don't see it as a, as a bad thing from the outside looking in, at least. I see that there's a lot of big powers in the world. You know, China, India, India is on the rise, obviously still not quite there. But and then the States, Russia, Europe is just a division of a whole bunch of countries that used to be very powerful, but now comparatively have lost a lot of uh, their stride in that sense. Um, and if they want to compete, there's going to have to, in my view, be more unification. 